1: I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: You're Locked On Jazz. Your daily podcast on the Utah Jazz. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
1: The August 23rd edition of Locked On Jazz, an incredible special edition. Frank Layden goes through the history of the Jazz, the favorite players of all of your years, Ricky Green, along with Adrian Dantley, Carl Malone, John Stockton. Crazy stories about Wilt Chamberlain and John Havlicek being offered to join the Jazz. It's all coming up on today's edition of Locked On Jazz. How are you? I'm David Locke, Radio Voice of the Utah Jazz, Jazz NBA Insider. We're going to continue with our kind of walks down memory lane. Kirk Cragthorpe and Steve Loom were just fabulous last week, and there's nothing in the world that equals 45 minutes with Frank Layden, and that's what I have for you today. I Promise me one thing. If you're listening and something happens along the way and you don't finish it, That you do. We go chronologically, we talk about Ricky Green and Mark Eaton, and then we get into Stockton Maloney, tells a really heartwarming story about Carl, and at the end, I walk through some of the great players of all time, Havlicek and Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, so make sure you catch that portion uh, of the interview as well. Today's show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the number one app for you to go get your tickets to any event that's coming up for the summer or for your jazz game games or anywhere else you might be traveling to if you're going to catch some baseball games late in the season use the promo code LOJAZ. that's LOJAZ to get your rebate after you download the app SeatGeek in fact I would suggest I'll tell you more about SeatGeek coming up but I would suggest just download the app go into the settings enter your promo code LOJAZ now then when you find the game or the event you want to go to you'll get that $20 rebate uh, sent back your direction all right, coming up this week, Thursday, Tony Jones interview. That should be fun about the off season. I'll be back with you live on Tuesday. We've tr- signed uh and Boy and Page. I'll get more into that on Tuesday. But today is a memory lane trip with the great Frank Layden, brought to you by SeatGeek. Let's get to it. Just on AD's incredible prowess and ability to score.
0: Adrian Danley was uh, uh, said by one of the great players, maybe the greatest player of all time, certainly one of the great skilled players of all time, Will Chamberlain, said that Adrian Danley was the best pivot man that ever lived. And when asked when questioned about that, because people said, Well, oh, how about his size? He said size has nothing to do with it. he says his footwork. He says he's so quick. He said and he, he draws vowels and he just he just wears you out. He says, but when he's in the pivot, he says he causes me more problems than any other center I play. And you, you have to think about you know, Will Chamberlain was something special, you know. And so that was quite a compliment I thought. And when I asked uh, Adrian Dantley about it, he said he owed it all to uh, uh, Morgan Wooten, his uh, his uh, high school coach. Because in in high school he uh, posted up a lot. He, he posted a lot, uh, up a lot in the pros too. But he but he posted up a lot in high school. And and Morgan Wooten, his high school coach, just taught him so much about footwork and balance and and, and what have you. And he, and he he was he was a master. It didn't matter who was guarding him, little guys, big guys, anybody else, he could get to the basket. All right. And he never missed a free throw. He's a great free throw shooter. So you were
1: the head coach at this point. If you don't remember the night, that's fine. We can go general. But the story, it's 1982. Ricky Green sets the uh, jazz record for nine steals in a game. Uh, if you don't remember that game, that's fine. But then go general, just Ricky
0: Green's defensively. Well, Ricky Green was a, a great player, a great instinctive player. He had a great feel for the game. What what is amazing is that he was he was in the minor leagues for so long, and because he got the label that everybody said Ricky Green can't shoot, and a lot of that was due to what what happens to all point guards, even even the ones today, is that uh, it's their shooting is effective by their choice of shots. And Ricky uh, came out of college, uh, you know he was used to scoring and being able to take the ball to the basket any time he wanted and uh, and when he got to the pros that that was more difficult, so he was forced to shoot outside more, and he he rushed shots he, he, his shot selection, uh, I guess that's the term I'm looking for, was very poor. But when he came to us and there was more uh, uh, I, I think we were uh, we, we designated more. Uh, when he could shoot and and when he could pass and who and and he was very fortunate that in his career was was to have adrian dantley to pass it to uh uh, some of that burden was taken off his hands but he was a good defensive player had great instincts to steal the basketball and uh you know i remember one game which he stole stole inbounds pass and then passed it to uh uh what's his name from kentucky there (laughs) uh uh darrell griffith and darrell griffith had a three-point shot uh, to beat uh, uh, Dallas, and I mean, you know, he, he he just, his instincts, his anticipation, but the great story is that here he is playing up in the minor leagues at some town, I don't know, Pocatello or one of those places, and, and we brought him down to play for the Jazz, and there was a lot of questions about him. It was interesting, as Rod Thorne was the one that gave me the tip, he said, you know, I think this guy should be in the NBA. That isn't there, and you guys, you you probably could take a chance on him and what have you. He says, "Why don't you look at Ricky Green?" So I went and I looked, and boy, I said, "This guy is very good. He looks looks good to me. You know, he's he's making good decisions. He's quick on defense. He's stealing the ball. He gets the ball up. We wanted to run, and he he certainly. We had a great outlet passer in Mark Eaton, who got the ball to him. He got the ball up the floor, and uh, and we it produced a lot of points for us. And, uh, you know, he came back two years later, he was on the All-Star team. I mean, I don't know if there was a more remarkable story of a player coming from the minor leagues and making it to the All-Star game in such a short period of time, or making it at all. Maybe there's never been another one, I don't know.
1: All right, you may remember this one. November 20th, 1984, there's got to be some Baxter here. Phil Johnson leaves, and you name Jerry Sloan. Uh, as your assistant coach, which obviously has huge ramifications for the history of the franchise.
0: Yeah, well, you know, uh, Jerry Sloan and uh, and Phil Johnson and Dick Marta were all very close. Uh, Dick Marta uh, told me once, he said, if you ever have a chance, he said, you certainly want to uh, look into uh, hiring Jerry Sloan. He says the guy is a hard worker. He's honest. You know he's he's going to do he's going to do a great job. He relates with the players and what have you. And I put that in the back of my mind. And of course, uh, when Jerry was out of work, uh, we used him as a scout. We had him go out and look at some you know on a, on a per diem basis, and uh, we had him go out and look for uh, look at players for us, college players and stuff like that. We didn't have the you know the big staffs in those days. We counted on people like Jerry. And Phil had a lot of faith in him. That was a wonderful relationship between the two of them. So when when Phil got the chance to get a head job, I mean, he didn't hesitate for me. He says you've got to hire Jerry. So you know I felt comfortable with Jerry, and I I felt that it was good, you know, his maturity. He was an ex-player. You know, Scott was very young. You know, I I hadn't been in the league a long time. So this was, it was the ideal situation. And let me say this that in the whole time all right whether i was coaching or i was in the front office or i was thing that in that time uh i never had a crossword all right with phil johnson for that matter or a great debate over anything we were doing or we were uh, thinking of doing it wasn't ever a case of hey the head coach is going to take priority over this uh over this now and i'm going to you know override these guys We just got along, like and Scott too, uh, like uh, you know, hand in a glove. I mean, we never, I I can't recall a single time that we raised our voices or we said, no, we're going to do it this way, or you know, this is the way it's going to be done. Some, you know, we just got along so well, and I think that had a lot to do with our relationship with the players. And and our uh, our eventual success, and of course, you know, I always said this when I stepped down. A lot of people said, "Well, what about you stepping down? What were you thinking?" I said, "I had no doubt at all that Jerry was going to take the team to the next level, and he did do that. You know, he was fresh blood. I'm sure he was sitting on some ideas, maybe, uh, but uh, he was he was a, he was a great coach with that. He had the thing that players." what coaches need. He was going to have, you know, respect from the authority above, which gave him authority. And he was going to have the respect of the players. And they knew him by reputation and no, nobody was going to outwork him. And he sincerely, uh, you know, it was never about money. It was never about anything. It was always about doing the best we could do. He didn't, he didn't, he was the type of guy who didn't uh, cry over losses, he didn't complain uh, you know, about about situations uh, the schedule or the travel or anything else. He just came to work, as he used to say. He used to come to work like a a guy going to work with his lunch pail and uh, and ready to pitch in and, and do whatever he could. He he was a he was a great assistant, he was a better head coach than him and Scott got along well and uh yeah, the rest is history. I mean, he coached his way right into the Hall of Fame. Right. Doesn't get any better than that. Does
1: not. All right. Let's go to a specific game. I'll see if you remember it. Nineteen eighty-three. It's the Jazz and the Nuggets, and Adrian Dantley shoots thirty-one free throws. He scores forty-seven. You win the game one twenty-six, one twenty-four. Does it spark any memory on that one at all?
0: Yeah. You know what? I think that that was the period of time in which uh, Adrian Dantley couldn't have been any better than he was. You know, he was in great physical shape, which he always was, but he was he was at his peak then. He had matured both mentally and physically. He bought into what we were doing, and and it really was paying dividends. You know, and and we were on our way then. We were starting to be very good, and uh, and of course uh, the you know the eighty three eighty four season. It was from there that we did get. It was for years, you know, the next two decades. And people forget, you know, they talk now about the, the Spurs and Popovich. That's how they used to talk about us, you know, that the Jazz is something special. One general manager in the league said, the thing that impresses me most is the way the Jazz bench reacts when something good happens. He said, they act like a college team. They have that kind of spirit. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, Adrian, Adrian was part of that. You know, he had quiet leadership. Uh, but, uh, and, and I'll tell you one thing, if I had the world, if the world was going to end on uh, whether we made the next one-on-one, I would have Adrian shoot the fouls for us.
1: Hmm. That's a great way to say it. All right, let me, uh, how about just go general here for a second. Um, I've got Mark, Mark Eaton, just kind of his shot-blocking prowess and what he was able to do.
0: Uh, the big, the secret with uh, there, were, there were a couple of things about uh, Mark Eaton that no one ever realized before. Maybe his college coach, his high, his junior college coach did. He had a lot of faith in him, and 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 certainly Mark believed in him. But let me say this about Mark Eaton. First of all, there was a quiet toughness about him. He didn't ever mouth off. He never never had anything to to say to people. Never talked down to them. But, he, but in the game, there was very few people that were, that were as tough as he was. A lot of centers in the league were afraid of him. You know, he was, he was one of the few guys that most centers in the league, even Jabbar, had to look up to. They had, when they looked over their shoulder, there was a face facing them, most of them. So, you know, and the other thing was he had a tremendous work ethic, you know, and he was humble. You know, whenever you asked him to do something, you know, he, and said, "Why don't you try this?" You know, he'd say, "Yeah," and and he would work at it. And he was the, he was probably the most unselfish jazz player of all time. He knew who he was. He didn't. He never. He never took uh, a look at the sheet and said, "How many shots did I get?" He didn't care how many points he uh, scored. All he cared about was winning. His biggest asset, I thought. Not only his shot blocking, of course, and the fear he put into other people making everybody else a, a better defensive player was his ability, his outlet passing. I mean, he was so accurate. I mean, he got the, we wanted to get the ball into Ricky Green's or, or John Stockton's hands. He would get the rebound and boom, right out. One pass and we were in a fast break. And the people overlook how important that is. Think about it today. How many guys in the league, you know, we can think in the old days on sell, uh, you know, uh, uh, there there are a couple of guys, uh, the, the big center for the Knicks there and stuff. But very few guys that we remember and say, hey, he's a great outlet passer. I've never heard, I haven't heard it about anybody in the Jazz since, you know, uh, Mark Eaton. But he was rebound, boom, one pass to the point guard and off we were. He was a great outlet passer. He was very humble about his role. He didn't care about pretty good Foul shooter, by the way, very calm, very, uh, you, you weren't afraid to have him on the line at the end of a game. Nobody was going to foul him on purpose, and he played hard. And, and, you know, he's a good guy. He's the kind of guy you want on your team, stayed here, made a, made a nice life for himself. And, uh, and when, you know, I, I was happy for him because the success came late, uh, uh, but he, he never got a big head. He always was a really wonderful, humble guy. And without him, uh, the, the, the great teams of the early uh, Jazz uh, never would have been.
1: All right, I'm about to ask Frank about John Stockton. And so that inter- that answer is going to be, you know, 5, 12, 17 minutes long. So before we do that, I want to take a moment and talk to you about SeatGeek, who's the nice enough to sponsor today's program. We get these programs for free, so I would love it if you would take the time to support the – Our friends at SeatGeek, it's always the first place I go for tickets because it's so easy it's user friendly and no hidden fees so the first thing is you get the app It shows you all the events shows you the tickets that are available and you know that that ticket price is exactly what you're going to get there's no hidden agenda there's no fees at the end the second thing that's so great about SeatGeek is the fact that they have the ticket rater and so you can tell whether or not it's a good ticket or a bad ticket whether there's a value to it you can put a big green circle says go red stay away from it that's not a good value and you're able to pick The seat. The other one is the ease. It's on your phone. You get it right then and there. Uh, My family used it to go see that Nitro show at the Rice Eccles Stadium earlier this year, and they. It was just the easiest thing that they could do because they get the tickets right on their phone so there's no problem to it. Plus, by the way, you can set price alert. So if you have a game you want to go to coming up you know you're traveling ahead, go set the price alert. It will notify you. Download the app now, SeatGeek. Go to the settings. Enter the promo code L-O-Jazz. LOJazz and when you make your first purchase, you get $20 back. That's from SeatGeek. Here it is. Frank Layden talking about... John Stockton. Uh, big picture on the great John
0: Stockton. Uh, John Stockton is uh, Ernie Banks. I mean, he's uh, he's uh, you know the, the uh, Phil Rosuto, He's uh, Pee Wee Reese. He's you know uh, he's 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 a guy uh, had a quiet leadership. Uh, played hurt, tough guy, uh, a little stronger and 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 uh, physical, and people gave him credit for as proven by his ability to, to put screens on centers and power forwards and uh, and if you know a lot of people say hey put the screen he didn't get knocked down to the ground very much he was uh, he was very fast and uh, and very unselfish he made the transition quicker than a lot of players do is to to make that transition as to when to pass and when to shoot and, uh, you know, he was very, he felt good about, uh, about uh, getting an assist, as other players would, about getting baskets. After his first year, and he asked me in our, our exit uh, meeting at the end of the season, what can I do to make myself better? And I said, John, you've got to increase your range. You've got to be more confident. in your outside shot. I said, uh, teams will drop off you. You know, we'll be playing against five or uh, five against four. You've got to be more cognizant that, yes, it's very good that you pass when you do, but we need your scoring, too. And uh, and I said that will help you with how you, you distribute the ball. You've got to be a threat. So he went home, and over the summer, I'm sure, shot, you know, 10,000 shots or something, or a million shots, because he came back. And uh, he, was, he was a little bigger, a little stronger, but he became a very, very great shooter. And, of course, we know about the big shot that got us into the finals and everything else. I mean, but, uh, you know, he, he was a good free throw shooter. And, you know, all of these guys is one, one thing, and he was the leader of it, I think he led us, is that he was in great physical shape. And at the end of the game, boy, that paid off. At the end of the season, that paid off. You know, he was, uh, he, the, our team was, was in great physical shape. They didn't have many injuries. John had very few injury, injuries, and uh, he was a tough guy. How tough? Well, he, he, he played in the Olympic team with a, with a broken fibula. So, you know, he, he, he wouldn't allow them to uh, cut him because of injury. He said, it's, it's my pain. I'll play. And that's what he did, you know. That's the kind of guy he was. He was the best. I mean, he was the best point guard I've ever seen. I mean, I, uh, there were, I know people throw a Magic Johnson at me, and I say, well, yeah, he's not a, a pure point guard. Magic Johnson is, is, is everything. I mean, he's the best at every position he played. But, but but you know, when you're talking about point guards, he would be the model. Never fancy. I cannot recall him once going through his legs, behind his back, uh, you know, uh, dribbling the ball behind his back, or nothing. It was just pure, pure basketball. He was, uh, he made it simple, and he kept it that way. And uh, he, he, of course, you know, one of the reasons we won uh, was because we didn't turn the ball over. John didn't turn the ball over. He didn't allow turnovers. He did. It just didn't happen with him. His passes to our teammates were, to his teammates were, usually right on the money, and they led to scoring. And a wonderful guy. Let me say a little thing about him. You know, on Sundays, he used to go around. We run the road, and he used to uh, make arrangements for us to go to Mass. And he got all the Catholics, coaches and players, whoever we were, and, and made sure we all got to Mass on a Sunday afternoon. Now, I, know, I don't know if that helped us win any uh, more games, but it certainly brought us together as a team. You know, he was uh, he was that kind of guy. He wasn't embarrassed to do that type of thing. And uh, so he he has a lot of strong character. He's John Stockton. You know, everybody knows John Stockton. You know, even little kids go, I'm John Stockton. You know, it's the best.
1: All right, let me go to a specific day for you and see if it brings back any recall. If it doesn't, that's fine. Um, February, excuse me, uh, December 18th of 1982, Danny Shays got 24 rebounds in a game, which at the time... Was the most ever by a jazz player?
0: Danny Shays is a very interesting story, in that Danny Shays was an old friend of mine. Uh, I knew his dad very well. Uh, his dad traveled. He came to spring training. He came to uh, spring training. He came to to our training camp and spent time with us. Gave some very good advice. He he was the type of father who was very proud of Danny but he also knew what Danny's limitations were. Danny was a very very bright guy. He was a pre med student and if he had chose to be he could have been a doctor. He was he was that good a student he could have gotten into medical schools. Uh, he was a he was a good scorer and he was a guy who who I think you could use uh, as a using technically what it takes to be a, a great rebounder, it isn't necessarily jumping ability. It's the ability, it's anticipation of the miss where the miss is going to go, and then getting a position. And Danny could do that. Danny was uh, was a guy who you know ended up playing I don't know it was 17, 18 years in the league or something like that. And I can remember when we drafted him, people saying that guy can't play. Uh, you know, Danny could score. Uh, Danny had a toughness about him. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and like I say, I had known him since he was a kid when I was at Niagara. And uh, and of course, I knew his dad, dad from going back to New York City. His dad was a Hall of Famer. And Danny was just a, a very solid player that every team should have on him. Because wherever Danny went, teams won. Whether it was because of him or not, I don't know, but uh, but he, his college teams won, and his pro teams won. They were playoff teams. I think he was in the playoffs every year of his career. I might be wrong about that, but it's close for sure. all
1: right, uh, let's go. you mentioned it a moment ago, but let's go to 1988 the day you resigned, just any backstory memory uh, decision about that.
0: No, you know what uh, I wish if I had to do over again that I would have uh, resigned during the, uh, the summer before. To tell you the truth, I was getting tired of it. And I also, it was getting to be a, something that, uh, I was getting bored with it. It seemed to be a deja vu all over again, you know? And that might sound silly, uh, but I, I said to you, and we're doing this again, who are we? You know, we're, we're close. And I also felt, and I, and I really mean this, David, that I had promised myself that when I stepped aside, that I would leave the team in hands that I could trust. And I also would leave not under duress. You know, I didn't want to be under fire. I didn't want to, to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, have people question me because of the pressures Or we had failed, or what have you? No, it was quite the opposite. We were a team that was destined to be very, very good. And when they got offered jobs with other teams uh, or or positions, people would say, you know, why don't you? I say, wait a minute, I could coach, you know, maybe one of the three best teams in the world. I don't have to go. I I don't have to go look elsewhere. I did get some uh, inquiries from other teams, Uh, but uh, you know, it was the right time for me. I was ready to do other things with my life. I didn't want to die on that bench. I didn't think that was fair to Barbara. And so right at that, I just I just felt that that moment was right. We were going to go off on some long trip to back east or something. The team was strong. Jerry was day in and day out becoming more and more in control. Uh, and uh, and he, his relationship with Scott was good. And I just felt good. And, of course, then they hired Phil, I mean, and, and it was great. Uh, yeah, it was it was the right time. And and like I say, it was the right time for everybody, including the Jazz, because Jerry took him to another notch. You know, David Checkets at the time was the president of the team, and he said to me, do you want to take a sabbatical? Do you want to take a couple months off and come back next season or something like that? And I said, David, it isn't about that. I said, this team is ready to take the next step. And I think it's healthy once in a while to change coaches, get new fresh ideas. Jerry was younger; he had a lot of energy. I knew we were going to get along in our relationship with uh, getting players and what have you. So, so I just uh, I just stepped up, and uh, and then I I uh, you know it was great for me because. Uh, the longer you're out, the more games you win, it seems. You know, people <laughs> say, oh, you're the greatest. And they realize that, you know, I'm the only guy who probably got my, my number retired, lost more games than he won. But however, uh, it wasn't fun anymore. And that was another thing I promised myself. When you don't get up in the morning and, and like yourself, David, I know you get up in the morning, you love your job. It's fun. You're looking forward to it. And that's the kind of spirit and what have you you should have in your life. I didn't have that anymore. I wasn't getting up looking to uh, go to practice or looking for a series or a special trip like I used to. It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't. And so I, I was looking for it. And I did. I had a lot of fun doing some uh, broadcasting. And I, I, I did some broadcasting for the University of Utah. Even did football. And it was fun. You know, I was a laugh. There was no pressure, what have you. And I was right about the other thing is the jazz got better. Jerry took him up a notch, and that, after all, was what our goal was. We we wanted to see the Jazz uh, contend for a championship.
1: All right, great stuff. Let's go to uh, March 19th of 1984. It's was it's a rare day. You had two players score 40 points. AD at 43. John Drew came off the bench for 42. Do you have any memory of
0: that game? Yeah, yeah. You know what? Uh, it was a great one-two punch. You know, John Drew could, the thing about John Drew, and I had had John Drew when I was an assistant at Atlanta. And, you know, John Drew would sit on the bench and he would watch the game. And I say watch the game. He didn't participate in the game. He just watched the game. And when you you called his number and said, let's go, he went in as if the score was nothing, nothing. And they used to call him Deuces. You know his numbers was two two, and then he, he, I mean, invariably he'd make his first shot. The guy had ice water in his veins. He was a scoring machine, and uh, and so you know he was a great one two punch uh, with with Adrian. They complimented each other, and and it was funny because for a scoring machine, uh, the, the the versatility of John Drew. He was a great offensive rebounder. He had great instincts for for where the ball was going to go, when, uh, and someone else shot it and then missed it. So he was he was a very good and and he also uh, had he probably was one of the finest players I ever had in terms of shot selection. And he never was looking to, to be a hero, you know. But I can remember one time when we were playing the Celtics, and and he had some foul shots at the end of the game, and he just calmly looked at me and he said, "Coach, get me the foul line. I'll win this game for us." You know, and sure enough, I don't know he he ran off like six free throws in the last minute of the game. We beat the Celtics, but he, he was he was a guy like I said had ice water in his veins, and and he had a toughness about him too. He was a New Orleans or uh, Louisiana waterfront type kid, and he uh, and he was tough. And a great compliment to, to what we already talked about. Adrian Danley, you know, one of the great uh, pivot men and inside players in the history of the game, a Hall of Famer. All
1: right, more coming from Frank, but I do want to remind you that season tickets for the 16-17 season are on sale now. 44 games, upper bowl seats start as low as $6 a game, lower bowl start at $42 a game, and you get an eight-day, seven-night stay in Mexico. No airfare, so you got to provide that. Just so you know, if you buy season tickets. One thing I've heard, by the way, is when we do this whole refurb, refurbing of the building and the redoing and this incredible project, the organization's working on the upper bowl is going to be awesome. So you might want to get those seats now, uh, because that experience is going to be a million times different a year from now. And you want those seats now while this team so you experience this season, and then you don't lose the best seat locations. You also get. access to exclusive events and all that. If 44 games is too much, I totally understand. I don't have a choice. Uh, so you can get half or quarter season tickets as well. Um, and check into it if you're worried, well, I'm going to miss certain games. You can check and see. They often will allow you Have to ask if they still do this. They'll often allow you to buy a ticket to specific games once you're half or partial season ticket holders. So, yeah, Warriors, Cavaliers. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Alright, so give them a call. 355-DUNK. Go to UtahJazz.com uh, right there. By the way, you can advertise on this program as well. If you want a male audience between the ages of 18 and 44, that's what we have right here. We're 98% male. 80% of our audience is between the ages of 18 and 44. We are about 70% full from September through Thanksgiving. So if you want to get on board, please make sure you email me at dlock09 at gmail.com. That's dlock09 at gmail. Dot com. All right, the final stretch with the great Frank Layton. All right, let me uh, just big picture general on Carl. Carl Malone? The only Carl that we ever need to reference by first name.
0: Carl yes. Malone. I'll tell you about Carl Malone. He's Jimmy Brown. I mean, he is a wrecking crew. He, uh, you know, he's tough. He played, I remember, down in an exhibition game we were playing down in New Mexico got his finger jammed. It was, so, it was one of those finger-twisted back. The doctors had him in the locker room, and, and he just grabbed it and snapped it back into place. And they said, well, we have this X-ray tomorrow. We better get him in the, the hospital. He's on playing the second half. And that's when he, he made the remark about, the, you know, some people came here to see me play, and I'm not going to let them down. There was an exhibition game. He was a tough guy. He wasn't afraid of anybody. He didn't back off anybody. And yet there was such a gentleness and kindness about him. I never knew anybody that was more generous with his, with his uh, uh, money, uh, with his time than he was. You know, uh, there were so many stories about picking up a mortgage for a poor family, or, or you know, helping some people out who had sick children, uh, and you know, I do know people even know this story, and I this is the first time I've told it publicly, but you know, when the year that we lost the uh, the playoffs, and and uh, was when uh, you know Russell got got pushed off. Uh, By Michael Jordan, Uh, you know, we lost that thing and we went up and saw Carl's new house and what have you and when we were leaving When we were leaving the doors opened and there was a brand new car The next day was Father's Day and he gave me the keys and said happy Father's Day He gave me a car, you know, and I said to him. I can't accept this. This is a conflict of interest Give me those keys. I'm out of here, you know, (laughs) and uh, yeah, yeah He was a very kind gentleman still is that way and uh, yeah, he had a lot of great qualities about him. You know, he had character, and what a combination having him and John together. Now, I and I'm not saying you know this might sound self-serving, but Carl Malone couldn't have gone with a better organization or team than he uh, then when he got with us. And uh, my reign with him was very good we got along well and and he played well and he followed instructions and you know he 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 was wide open to make himself he wasn't gonna i told him after his rookie year if he worked on his shooting and and uh and his defense and stuff he could be another great player not another palooka in this league who was just a big bruiser and he went on he was the worst foul show. he was he was the first guy of uh you know, shack a hack or hack a shack or hack Jordan or whatever they do. You know, people used to follow him on purpose at the end of the game because he was such a poor foul shooter. You couldn't do that. And yet, you know, after the first two years of his career, he became a very good foul shooter and a clutch foul shooter. And you didn't want him on the line and that helped his game a great deal. But yeah. And you know, I've remained a more than teammate coach, but friend. I always felt that way. We were good friends. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, we, lucked. We, we we were lucky. But he was lucky because John Stockton was the perfect time, the perfect player for him. You know, he was going to become, I think he's the second high scorer in the history of the league. If he isn't, it's close, the second or third. All right. And John Stockton, of course, leads in assists. So when, you know, you want to, you want to lead in assists, you got to have somebody finish. And Carmelo was a great finisher. You know, he gave you everything he had. And uh, and he was magnificent. And one time I was sitting with Lavelle Edwards, and uh, I said to Lavelle, "What do you think that guy would be on the football field?" He said, "Oh, I, I." He said, "To tell you the truth, Coach, I've thought of that so much." He said, "I'd look at him and I couldn't imagine what he would be like in football pads." So I said, "What position would he play?" And he looked at me. Are "You serious?" He said, "Anything he wanted." <laughs> and uh, you know, he he was that kind of athlete. Like I said, I compared him with a Jimmy Brown who I maybe I'm dating myself, but was during uh, when I went to college, Jimmy Brown was the big college hero, and uh, you know he could do it all. He was a great athlete, Jimmy Brown you know a lacrosse player baseball player, track star, And I think Carl Malone could have done all those things. Carl Malone had that thing that, that, that a lot of, a lot of big people don't have. He was not only fast, but he was quick not only fast, but quick, then you put good hands with that. And then you put, you put, uh, uh, dedication, all right. And character and, an examination of your soul in it. And that's where you get it. You, you, you get, you know, may, I, I don't know. I think he's the greatest power forward. I I know there'd be an argument about that, but he certainly is going to be in any argument you make about it. He was that good. And, uh, and they, he was very fortunate to play with John, and John was very fortunate to play with him. And I was very fortunate to have the both of them together.
1: All right, let me run through one more specific date, and then I'm going to go some non-Utah Jazz moments if you still have time. Uh, but the one specific date is April 10th, 1979. The New Orleans Jazz announced plans to relocate to Utah. What do you remember about that?
0: Yes, I do. Uh, when I went for the interviews I always came here with Mr Batterstone in uh in Salt Lake City. I didn't know why. Uh but uh you know, I I I gave it three different interviews, all three were here and uh, I I d I didn't understand. Well anyway, they offered me the job. I remember I was down in the Hilton Hotel and uh they said to me, uh, what are you uh at that time, was the old Sheridan. It's the Sheridan now, but it was the Hilton then. And they said, we're, we're going to offer you the job uh, as general manager. I had talked to them about doing both. I thought I should have done both at the time. But anyway, it turned out, and they said, and we agreed on salary and what have you. And then they said, but to be fair with you and honest with you, and this has got to be you've got to swear that you will not tell a soul but within the next couple of weeks, we're going to announce that the Utah Jazz are going to. I think the Jazz are going to relocate here, and at that time they said it may be a different name and what have you. But uh, yeah, we're leaving New Orleans to come here. So that was a surprise. I called Barbara and I told her I said I got the job, but also you got to keep this a secret. And uh, I said we're moving here to Salt Lake City, and Barbara had been there. We had come out to see the Final Four that year. And so she liked this area, I and mean, what's not to like? And so anyway, uh, I said, but don't worry. We'll only be here three years, and uh, they'll move. I don't think this community can support you know, the University of Utah and BYU and us all together. So anyway, uh, it turned out that I was wrong about that, because not only did it become a place where the Jazz established themselves, as one of the great franchises, but also it became our home and uh, and our children's home and everything else. The rest was history. Uh, you know, a guy whose name also should be involved, was Wendell Ashton, who was the publisher of the Deseret News, he had as much to do with us bringing the team here as anybody. He was a wonderful man and he had a lot of vision and he saw what, uh, uh, what having a, a team like having a major league team in the city meant to the city. He told me once he said every day in every paper around the world, they'll be mentioning the Utah jazz, you know, well, at that time we weren't sure it was going to be the jazz. We were forced into the name. Uh, we had contests and everything. I a uh, different names, but uh, we had injunctions against us by the, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess the longs of the, the, the uh, political arm of uh, Louisiana, because, uh, for whatever reason we owed money or something and so we ended up the utah jazz tricky name but it worked
1: all right uh actually do you have any memories of uh the day when larry buys 50 percent of the jazz
0: yes yes i did i met him uh, you know and he he, he was he was uh lively he had a little spirit uh you know and uh i thought well this, this guy he was a great softball player he's a He seems like a very bright guy. He's a a guy who, you know, brought himself up by the bootstraps, and uh, I think we're going to be able to work well together, and we did. And uh, we had a good relationship. He was a good owner. I was very fortunate. I worked for Ted Turner with the Atlanta Hawks, who was a great owner, and then I worked for... uh, For Sam Batterstone, he was a wonderful man and a great owner and still is a wonderful man, by the way, and Larry Miller. Larry Miller, I always say, uh, I could could make it very short. People would say, what kind of owner is it? I said, if we asked him, we want to make this trade, we want to buy this piece of material, we want to spend on doing this, we want to leave two days early, whatever, whatever it was, he always would say, will it help us win? And if the answer was yes, he'd say, go do it. You know, and we never argued about it. I don't think I ever had a harsh word with, uh, with him about, you know, or whatever we did. We agreed on pretty much everything that we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, he was he, we had fun together, too, yeah. The other thing is, and I should bring this up, David. People ask me a lot of times, what was the biggest moment of your life? And I coached the All-Star team, and, and there were a lot of honors and stuff like that. But you know what was the greatest time? In 1984, we made the playoffs for the first time. We, we did it at home. We clinched at home. Made the players for the first time in the, in the franchise history. We went into the locker room and I was congratulating the players and, you know, we were, we were uh, you know, kidding around when you do those type of things. And, uh, and uh, somebody came in, there. Uh, David Allred, the publicity man, came in and said, They want you back out on the floor. And I went back out on the floor with the jazz players and we walked around, shook hands with the people. And the people just wouldn't leave. They kept on cheering and cheering and cheering. And that one moment was was my greatest moment with the Jazz. So that's eighty four.
1: That's eighty four I'm trying to find it right now. So that's, yeah, 1984. that's the end of eighty four. So you, yeah. that's the year you beat Denver, lose to Phoenix, right? The first time? Yes. Do you remember Yes, we
0: lost it the last second shot, yeah. we went we went as far as we could go. We were who we were.
1: Was that the last home game of the year when you clinched it? Or was it? Yes.
0: No. It was no. No. It was. It wasn't the last we clinched before before the end of the season. But uh, okay. it was the, we we knew we had clinched.
1: Yeah. So is the is the day you're talking about there? The, is the day you clinched? Yes. I'll have to try to yes. back that out. You played actually. It's interesting. I'm looking right here, of your final home games. You played two of your final three home games in Vegas that year.
0: Yeah. So, no, it was before then, though. So it must have been we been, clinched before then. It might
1: have been April second against the Rockets, or maybe March San 2nd. Diego. San Diego was the final home game of the year. Was that? You think that was the night?
0: No, I don't think so. I don't know. I it could be. All right, I'll try yeah. to see if I. I'll, I'll, For some reason, I had San Diego on my mind. It could have been the last day. I think we clinched before, but uh, it was a big thrill. The fans would not leave. All they kept they cheering and cheering and cheering. David already right, coming. He says, "Hey." They're not going to leave. You better get out there on the floor. Oh, that's so so great. we took the whole team out. We went around and sort of thing, and that was a wonderful night. That's yeah, great. it was great.
1: Uh, all right, let me just—if you have another few minutes, can I ask you just about? I want just yeah. all right because you've got you've got some. Um, so some on nights where we don't have a jazz moment, we're doing uh, NBA gr- great moments. So uh, just Julius Irving, what comes to mind?
0: Well, I knew Julius Irving when he was a high school kid. I recruited him to go to Niagara. Julius Irving was uh, one of the finest people I had ever met and knew. Believe it or not, he was the type of player that he would call ahead and say to me, "Frank, is there anything I can do to help you sell tickets?" And I'd say, "Well, we could have a quick, we could put a quick luncheon together or something like that." He was just he was a real good guy, a real smart guy, by the way. And he had gotten a lot of survival instincts from playing in the ABA. Great player, great guy. Deserves the uh, term doctor, Dr. J. Uh,
1: Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
0: He was special. Again, another guy you met. When I was coaching in high school, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was playing uh, in high school. And I went out of my way to go see him play. I knew his coach, Jack Donahue, very well at Powell Memorial. And, uh, again, intellectual, very good, very good uh, guy.
1: So two more, and then uh, Wilt Chamberlain, what what memory
0: would you have? Wilt Chamberlain the... was a friend of mine, and and believe it or not, that after he retired, I asked him to come to play for the Jazz. There's a well-kept secret that I'll reveal right now. I called Wilt Chamberlain and said, would you come and play for us, and all you have to do is play the home games. I don't know how the league would have taken that. But there were two guys I did that to. One was, was, was uh, Will Chaim and the other one was Havlicek. I said, well, Havlicek liked to come out here to ski. And I said, all you have to do is play the home games. And you can go back to California and, and uh, then come and play the game. He said, no. He said, you know what? I've reached that point in my life. I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. He said, I've got through my career without being hurt. He said, at this time, without really training and everything, he said, "But I appreciate it." But I did. I offered him, and I thought it would have been great. All I cared about was was winning and and putting people in the place here, you know. So, but uh, yeah, he offered Will Chambers to come. Will Chambers a great athlete, great athlete. But it was so easy to him that he never, you know, you know, it was just uh, it was it was uh, basketball was too easy for him.
1: Um, and then the other was going to be Havlicek, ironically enough.
0: Well, Halochek was the all-around player, great consummate team player. He would come off the bench if he had to. Uh, he, I got to know him very well. With his uh, his son-in-law played uh, minor league baseball. Can't think of his name now, but he played in. Uh, uh, Washington, the, uh, I'm trying to think, well, I died as not important, and he had another son who was in show business who uh, actually uh, played in the, in the Broadway production of Les Mis. Well, anyway, he was here when the Les Mis production was on the road, and also, uh, uh, his his son-in-law was playing in, uh, playing Mind League baseball, Triple A baseball. You can probably look that stuff up, but anyway, the thing is that he used to like to ski, so when he skied, he used to come here, which would, in turn, we'd end up having lunch, and he would come to games. You know, he'd call up and ask for tickets, and great guy, great team man, good defensive player, good offensive player, good all-around player who could have probably played. I mean, the rumor was that, you know, he could have been a great football player or anything he wanted to be. Again, that that common denominator, self-discipline and toughness, mental toughness. He was a tough guy. Loved him.
1: You're the best, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. Tell Barbara, okay. I'm sorry I took so much yeah. of your time. Tell her, I hope No, that's okay.
0: We're, we're just going out to grab a bite and then go to the movies. But anyway, what, David, I want to say this here. I like you very much. I like your work ethic. I think you've been a great asset to the jazz. Uh, with that said, I'm always there for you. Whenever you need me, someone else don't show up. Somebody, you need a guest at the last minute, uh, please call me, all right? You're very kind. But you, that means I'm always road, available.
1: That means the world to me. Thank you. You're very kind. Give my best to Barbara as well, and I will talk to you soon.
0: Good. Thanks, buddy. Okay, buddy. We're good. Bye. Rejecting the screen
1: has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you
0: should give it a shot.
1: I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday,